If you're enjoying History's Greatest Cities, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support. I hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast mini-series, History's Greatest Cities, exploring Europe's most beautiful, intriguing and historically significant cities. I'm Paul Bloomfield, travel writer and history fan, and in each episode of this series, I'll be virtually roaming the streets and sights of a great metropolis in the company of an expert historian guide. Together we'll delve into origin myths and uncover stories of shifting populations conflicts and culture, wealth and weakness, and we'll visit key locations that reveal fascinating insights into the people and events that shape the modern city. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by award-winning historian, author and broadcaster, Bethany Hughes. Bethany has spent much of the past three decades studying and bringing to life the history of the ancient world, having taught and conducted research at Cambridge and Cardiff Universities and at King's College London. Her astonishing book, Istanbul, A Tale of Three Cities, incorporates masterful research in new archaeological evidence to tell the story of this most complex and captivating place across the millennia. Bethany is the ideal guide to lead us through the streets, mosques, museums, palaces and bazaars of the city now known as Istanbul. Together we'll visit awe-inspiring monuments linked to diverse aspects of its ancient history, as well as some more modern but equally fascinating landmarks. And we'll highlight facets of the physical city that reveal little-known truths about the character of Istanbul, Constantinople and Byzantium. Bethany, welcome. Hello, lovely to be with you. So Istanbul, as is so often the case, myths long swirled around the creation of the city and the land and water on which it stands. When was the area around the site of modern Istanbul first inhabited and how did the first settlements take root? Well, you're absolutely right. First of all, it's a place that's as much um, an idea as it is a physical city. People have always told stories about it. And um, its earliest inhabitation, actually, 
around the area of Istanbul goes right the way back, kind of 200, 250,000 years. So um, in some of these beautiful caves, which are just outside the city, where we have kind of bare bones and pre-fully human activity. So it's a, it's a very long established place. It's the oldest, longest standing polity in the whole of Europe. And there's some incredible new finds, which really sort of push, push the dates of, of what we now call Istanbul back and back. And, and I will tell you about those because I love all the archaeology in the city. But just, just as you say, the kind of myths that sw- swirl around the place. It's called Byzantium sometimes because of this brilliant story that the Greeks told. So the Greeks said that Zeus, the king of the gods, was having an affair, as was his way, with a mortal, with a priestess called Io. And Io was, unfortunately for Zeus, the priestess of his wife, Hera. Hera, as you can imagine, was not too pleased about this. And she turns Io into a cow. And this cow, she then sends a kind of gnat, a really annoying mosquito to sting it. And the cow leaps over this water. And cow in ancient Greek is boss. And she leaps over the Bosphorus, the kind of cow ferrying place. And that's what we're told is how the Bosphorus gets its name. And then Eo has a daughter who has a son called Byzas, whose, whose father is actually Poseidon, you know, the, the god of the sea. And it's Byzas who founds this beautiful place. I mean, obviously, that is all nonsense, but it's really interesting that it was so important for the Greeks that they made up this foundation myth about it. And also really important for us to uh, remember that this is a city which is as much about the waterways that surround it as it is about the city itself, which is why Poseidon, the god of the sea, uh, gets a place in the kind of foundational myth. So anyway, so lots of stories, but really excitingly, and this you can probably tell from the enthusiasm in my voice. I mean, I adore Istanbul. I've spent a huge amount of time there and I love it for a million reasons. But one reason is that there is so much new archaeology that's constantly coming up out of the city because it's a city that is developing and is really sort of claiming its place on the world stage as a a modern world-class city, as well as having all this incredible history. There's a lot of development and building work in the city of Istanbul. And Often uh, what's discovered when this building work happens is remarkable rescue archaeology. And there was the most amazing find when the new subway system was being generated for Istanbul and also these new underwater tunnels that go under the Bosphorus. Really the kind of prehistoric past of Istanbul came to life. Incredible things came out of the earth. So you get, for instance, the world's oldest wooden coffin and the world's oldest wooden canoe paddle and evidence of settlements going back 8,000 years where you get these plucky little communities who were living in that area. They were getting up in the morning and picking fresh pistachios from the pistachio forests and picking fresh frigs that we knew around there. It was was it been like this kind of paradise, I think. We know from these archaeological remains, 9,000 species of flora so that, that grew there. So it was a really rich, beautiful place. And that is how it starts as a place where people live. Um, so, so that's it's it's an it's an initial story really as a settlement and again you know why i love it is that if you walk around istanbul today you'll still be struck by how many beautiful trees there are by these little green spaces if you sail down the the bosphorus you can see kind of either side the asian and the european side the bosphorus banks absolutely covered in in woodland 
And that's always been part of the character of the city. It's been a, a place where green spaces are very prominent. And I just love the fact that in that earliest prehistoric iteration, it was, as I said, almost like this kind of bucolic pastoral paradise. So, so we know about this and we even have the, the footprints in the pre-Bosphoran mud of the women and men and children who lived there 8,000 years ago. And just to kind of Give you a give you a taste of the scale of these finds. Uh, so far, there are ninety thousand crates of finds and material from that rescue archaeology, uh, just kind of waiting to be analysed. So, if there if there are any budding archaeologists out there, get yourselves to Istanbul because there's there's plenty of material to work through. So yeah, so it's a very 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 ancient city. It's a city that's all about the waters that run around it and run through it. And it's a city that's always had a kind of appreciation of the the beauty of nature uh, baked into the urban space. So we've got a story then of a, a very attractive area with lots of natural resources. Was the development of the city a sort of organic process, if you like, from, from a settlement it grew over time to somewhere that was a more urban space? It, yeah, I mean, it did. I mean, there was also this, again, kind of going right back in in prehistory, there was this huge event that happened around 5,500 BCE when there was basically the melting of ice. And in that area, waters rose, we think, by an incredible amount. So around 238 feet in 300 days. So if you sort of, you know, <laughs> just do the maths on that, that's 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 a really fast rise of, of, of water. And what that did is that poured over a landlip and basically created the Bosphorus. So up until then, the Bosphorus hadn't existed. And what you have in the Bosphorus, this, this kind of massive water channel that runs right through the city, underneath that, there's a submerged river. So it's a very kind of dynamic waterway. And of course, what that does is the Bosphorus, in a way, separates east and west. It's it's always talked about as a city that is the bridge between uh, east and west. It's obviously a city that spans the continents of Europe and Asia. Asia. And that is true. But as importantly, it's a place that connects north and south. So obviously, if you go to the north of the Bosphorus, you have the Black Sea and beyond that, uh, Crimea, Ukraine, Russia. If you go down to the south of the Bosphorus, head out across the Sea of Marmara uh, through the Hellespont, then in many ways, your next stop is Africa. So it's a city that is hyper connected at all points of the compass. And because of that, it's a city that became incredibly desirable. So we find beautiful evidence of, when we're now talking about around 4,500 BCE, original kind of Thracian pots, these lovely pots with beautiful uh, human faces on them, green mace heads. Um, there's evidence of activity from uh, what are probably the Mycenaean Greeks in the Bronze Age. So it's, so it's a place that a lot of people come to. And again, a kind of tomb was discovered recently, dating back around 4,000 years, that seems to show evidence of Central Asian influence. So it's a kind of round Kurgan style tomb burial that's discovered in the western edge of the city. So a lot of people came here, as I say, because it was so hyper-connected by the waterways around it. So it Yes, it did grow organically, but as always happens with a success story, a lot of people wanted to claim that they were the ones who founded the original city. And the Greeks, you know, I, as, as you probably all know, I love the Greeks. I'm a great Hellenophile. The Greeks who invented the word history 
are very good at writing themselves into it. So they said that they founded this beautiful city, um, originally a settlement on the Asian side called Chalcedon, uh, which is now Kadakoi. But this really was the city of the blind. The, 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 the kind of best location for the city was on that lovely historical headland of Byzantium. And around about 667 BCE, probably led by settlers from the Greek mainland, this Greek feeling settlements of Byzantium was created. And, you know, there's there's definitely local influence there as well. But it's all the kind of things you would expect from a Greek city. So there are baths, there are gymnasia, there are stoa. And if you walk around the modern day city of Istanbul, you can still kind of trace the ghostly footprints and outlines of a lot of those very early Greek buildings in the city. And a place like that, which, as you say, was so rich in resources, but also strategically important as a, as a crossroads between north and south and across the Bosphorus, that was a very desirable place. And, and a number of people afterwards came to view it as somewhere to be to be taken, to be conquered, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. So the Persians come in around 513 BCE. Emperor Darius of the Great Persian Empire builds a pontoon bridge of boats uh, across the Bosphorus. Uh, You you get various people attacking the Spartans, the Athenians, you know, everybody everybody wants a piece of the city. And again, actually, it's a really interesting thing for me thinking about it as a historian, even though everybody tried to kind of claim it as their own. There's something about the city of Istanbul. It's so incredible geographically. It has such an amazing character and such a sort of incredible sense of itself. It often revolted and it often kind of fought off people who tried to, to suck it into their empire. And that's a that's again, it's a kind of character of the city that's carried on right the way through the ancient medieval, even into the modern worlds, so that it's a, a city that where there are often protests and riots. There's a fantastic 12th century author called Nicates Honiates who says... Istanbul has a kind of indifference to its rulers as though that was, uh, you know, again, if that was sort of baked in, if that was inborn to the the spirit of those who live in the city, that they're always going to kind of rise up against what they think of as injustice. So, So it tries to you know, it tries to hold on to its own identity, but eventually it, it is taken over properly by the Greeks. Um, and then, of course, by the great superpower, emerging superpower of the region, Rome. So that brings us on quite nicely to that period following the Persians, the, the Macedonians under Alexander. When Rome turned its attention east towards Byzantium, what happened then and and how did that affect the development of rome itself well it's uh, rome is is basically looking east you know it decides it's no longer a republic it's an empire this starts pretty early on you know even around 129 bce we find that there's communication with the city with the romans wanting to kind of make it a really important part of their station and there's an ignatian way, which is the Via Ignatia, this incredible, brilliant Roman road. I'd advise everybody to go to Istanbul and travel there because it is such a cool place. You know, you could live there for a year and you wouldn't see everything that there is to see. But if you want to be really adventurous, why not travel by road, via the old Roman road, the Via Ignatia, which basically runs from the heel of Italy. So you go across the waters into what is now Albania, modern-day Dures, ancient Dyrrhachium. And there's this beautiful straight road, you know, some bits of the 
motorway in Albania and and Greece around there are still called the kind of Ignatian Way. But you can actually walk along the old Roman flagstones too in some areas. And this Ignatian Way goes right the way to Istanbul. So the Romans know that they can move soldiers and supplies and resources into the city. And you sense kind of reluctantly, but then they realise, you know, what side of the bread, the butter is, the people of what was then Byzantion, which is the the Greek formulation, become Byzantium, which is the kind of the Latinized version of that. And uh, the Romans are in charge. So I, I think it's really, you know, it's really important for us to remember when we say Rome, we kind of think of Italy. But actually, for many Romans, Istanbul was the, was the centre of their power. And if, and if you go there, there's a fantastic monument that still survives today, right in the historical centre of Istanbul. It's very close to the Hippodrome, if you go there, which was, of course, a, a chariot racetrack developed by the, the Greco-Roman community there. So there were chariot races, you know, as you'd imagine in Rome, and also very close to Hagia Sophia, the beautiful, huge church built by Justinian and Theodora. But there's a lovely monument, this, the, the remains of a monument called the Milion, And I would just urge everybody to go there because it's not the most beautiful monument in the world, but it's one of the most important because this was built by the Emperor Septimius Severus. And in a way, it marked the kind of beginning and end of civilization. It was from this stone monument, all the distances of the Roman Empire were measured. So it's almost like kind of ground zero for the Roman project. And isn't it interesting that that monument is not in Rome, as you might expect, but in what was then Byzantium. So it's a really kind of crucial place for the Romans. And actually, people know that this is a city that's been called Istanbul, Constantinople, uh, Byzantium. But not many people know that actually it also had a fourth name for a while. It was called Augusta Antonina, which is the kind of formal name of Caracalla, of the Roman emperor Caracalla, whose actual name is Marcus Aurelius Severus Antonius Augustus. So it was called after him as well briefly, but then people went back to um, Byzantium. So yeah, when you go, definitely go and have a look at this million mile marker. As I said, it's a bit denuded now. You know, it's not, it's not the most kind of beautiful of monuments, but it's one of the most important ancient monuments uh, that survives in the world. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Extraordinary. And that presumably that was towards the end of the second century AD? Yes, with Septimius Severus, exactly. So, you know, by this time and in the third century, the Romans are very clear that this is a place, again, that, you know, has brilliant strategical uh, possibilities. It's a fantastic place for soldiers to be based. It's a fantastic place to make money because you can tax boats as they come up and down the Bosphorus from the Sea of Marmara up the Bosphorus to the Black Sea. And it's full of resources uh, in and of itself. As I said, it's a very fertile place. It's rich in sea life. So the Golden Horn, which is one of the little sort of side waterways off the Bosphorus, was probably called Golden because 
there were just so many fish scales that glimmered in it. It was just so full of tuna and dolphin and, uh, you know, an incredible number of fish. So actually the Romans make a lot of money from the city as well by catching the fish and selling selling that. So, so yeah, so the Romans have very, very definitely arrived. They're, they're not going to let go of this, this, uh, this, both this kind of honey pot and money pot that they have control over. You mentioned then that it, it was called Constantinople, as I'm sure most people have been taught in school. Who was that named after and, and what was the impact of that man on the city? So this is the name of Constantine the Great, who was declared Roman Emperor, of course, in York, actually. So we're talking now about the early 4th century CE. And Constantine sets his sight on this city. There's a kind of struggle for power between four potential single rulers of the great Roman Empire. And Constantine, actually, a lot of the battles take place on the Bosphorus. He wins out and he decides that he's going to create this new HQ. Interestingly, originally he, he goes and looks at Troy, but I think sensibly he realises that the city of Troy, even though it's got a fantastic name and this kind of mythical association, basically the harbours are not great there and the currents are very difficult, whereas Byzantium has a lot of natural harbours and it's, and it's a great place where you can both keep uh, naval fleets and also fleets of traders. So Constantine refounds the city. The work begins in around 324 and then it's it's formally re-established and re-founded in 330 CE as Constantinople, as this new city, which is a kind of big, bold statement on behalf of Constantine. And, you know, the city does change in some ways then. So you find... It's a city because Constantine is baptised on his deathbed. It's a city that is newly Christianised. So it becomes the headquarter of the new Christian experiment. And I think really importantly, when people say that Rome fell, you know, it didn't really fall. It just moved 850 miles further east and became what was what was officially known as the new Rome, the second Rome, the city of Constantinople. And it was a really flourishing place at this time. And again, if you go and travel around the city, you can still find beautiful remnants of that period. So there's a column of Constantine that he erected, which if you go to the Grand Bazaar, Every, every traveller has to go to the Grand Bazaar and go and, you know, buy at least a silk scarf or at least get a get a cup of tea there. But just outside the Grand Bazaar, there's this um, remnant of this, what was a huge, originally 160 foot tall porphyry, so purple stone column, which was topped with this incredible statue, which was sort of strange kind of mashup statue. It, it could be that it was Constantine. It could be that it was representing Jesus. It could be that it was representing Apollo or the god Sol Invictus, or a kind of a bit of a mix of mix of all of those. It was a it seems to have been a naked statue with this incredible sort of sun crown around his head. And I just again if you go there just stop for a moment and have a think about what that says about the city. There's, it's a city that looks both east and west, that at this point celebrated both the old gods of the pagan worlds and the new boy god of Jesus, because the stories that were told about the statue are fantastic. We're told that into the crown of this statue 
were melded, the, the very nails that crucified Jesus Christ, that if you go down into the column itself, there underneath was buried the, the axe with which Noah built the ark to save you know humanity from the flood. And even the baskets that Jesus used to feed the 5,000 were said to be buried there. So it's it's a really kind of great, it's, a, it's very cool that the monument survived. And it's really great to just sort of think about how symbolic a city this was for so many through history. And you mentioned then that Rome, if you like, declined the city of Rome in the West. So Constantinople was the, the, the capital, the centre of this great empire. How did it develop over the following centuries? Well, it was Christianity is the, is the new religion on the block. And it's the, as I said, really the HQ of, of Christianity rather than Rome. I mean, Rome starts to kind of edge its way up as the medieval period continues, but it's really Constantinople that's the centre of everything. It's a city that has an incredible name for itself. It's a city that offers sanctuary to people. Really interestingly, with this with this sort of notion of Christian values of uh, looking after the poor and the needy, so people could claim sanctuary there. So it becomes a, a, a very very um, international city. It's also a city that starts to be extraordinarily beautiful. And two of my kind of favourite characters from the, the story of the world are uh, the Emperor Justinian and his incredible wife. Wife, Theodora. Both of them, this, we're talking about the 6th century CE at this point. So both of them have very, very, very humble origins. Theodora famously was the, supposed to be the daughter of a prostitute and a, and a bear tamer who worked in the Hippodrome. And she did these kind of erotic dances in the Hippodrome in between the chariot races. But she manages to clamber up the pile, you know, she, my goodness, she is the incarnation of being socially mobile. And she ends up marrying the soon-to-be emperor, Justinian. Um, and so she becomes empress of a, of a million square miles of the, the, the territory of the Byzantine Empire. And these two are catnip to one another and they start to rebuild the city in a very beautiful way. And, and one of the most kind of uh, famous legacies for the city is the extraordinary church of Hagia Sophia, which has now been turned, it was brief, it was a, a mosque once the Ottomans had taken over and it has been turned back into a mosque again now, but it was a museum for most of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century. It's an extraordinary building. Again, if you go, you you just have to go and spend time there. It still dominates the Istanbul skyline. And for over a thousand years, it had the, once one of the biggest buildings in the world and had the biggest dome span. And that was just one of the things that they built. So they start to turn this city into an extraordinary kind of advert for Christianity. And again, just a little bit of advice. There's a, there's a church called the Little Hagia Sophia, which was also built by this, this pair that not so many people go to. It's, it's very close to the main Hagia Sophia. Pop in and have a look at that because there's a beautiful poem dedicated to Theodora from Justinian, basically saying what a cool woman she was. Um, and there's a very good secondhand book stall <laughs> outside it. So if you go to the city, definitely go and see the Little Hagia Sophia as well as the the, the grand Hagia Sophia. So during this period, we've got a, a, a thriving capital of, of a, a big empire. And that sort of place as always attracts attention, unwanted attention from elsewhere. So what was happening elsewhere in Europe and around the Middle East that was going to have an impact on Constantinople? 
Well, I mean, lots of things. It's 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 constantly attacked. It's constantly besieged Constantinople. So it's it's attacked by Vikings coming from the north. It's attacked by Arab armies coming from the east and the south because of is, Islam is, is is hugely on the rise from seventh century uh, CE onwards. But it also gets attacked by Christians and. You know, for me, it's 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 one of the darkest episodes in medieval history. Is during the Crusades and particularly the Fourth Crusade of twelve o four, because Christian armies from the west, so we're talking about Franks and Venetians, they're coming to you know the so-called Holy Land in theory to reclaim territories from the Islamic forces who are there. But actually, they divert and they go and camp outside the city of Constantinople. Originally, they're across the water in Asia in this this place, Chalcedon, which was the city of the blind, one of the original foundations in the city. And they wait for a year. And the women and men inside Constantinople just don't really understand what's going on because they look outside their walls and the walls, by the way, which again, many of which still stand. So these beautiful walls built by the Emperor Theodosius that you can go and walk around today. Um, You can even go to the Golden Gate, the famous Golden Gate, which was the terminus of the Ignatian Way. Again, if, if you go, I'd really advise you to sort of doing doing a, a circuit around the, these wonderful old walls of the city. But so at this time in 1204, so they, as I say, the inhabitants are inside, they look outside, they can see these crusaders with red crosses. So they think, well, these are our brothers in arms. They're never going to attack. But Constantinople is so wealthy at this time. You know, it was in the 10th century, it was the, the biggest city in Europe, you know, 10 times bigger than most other cities that kind of claimed to be cities. Uh, it was somewhere where you have these beautiful icons of the Virgin Mary, who was said to be the protector of the city, covered in in jewels. There are artists there, there are gold workers, you know, so it's, it's a big kind of X marks the spot, treasure chest in a way. And the Crusaders use this a terrible, terrible excuse and basically say they're the kind of wrong kinds of Christians. They're too Eastern. And they attack and it's and they besiege for four days. They attack for five. And the scene, the, the sort of descriptions are, are really up, you know, they're still traumatizing to, to read because they slaughter and they rape and they steal. They burn all these beautiful documents, parchments, which contained a lot of the the great classics of the ancient world had been copied out and saved in Constantinople and these go up in smoke. They steal a lot of things. A lot of things are taken to Venice because Venice was really kind of the, the power behind this particular attack. Uh, they rip out images of the Virgin Mary and steal the jewels uh, from the frames round about. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a terrible moment for Constantinople and the Westerners are in charge for a while, but in 1260, the Byzantine Constantinople original inhabitants managed to take the city back. But it's almost, I kind of feel at that point, it was such a shock to be attacked by people who should have been allies that although there is a there is a, a brief flourishing in the 14th century when you get these beautiful churches being built and decorated and again you can go and visit a lot of those still in the city it's almost as though Istanbul has lost its mojo it's kind of lost its confidence it's lost its its sense of of who it is and then the Ottomans the Ottoman Turks from the east are really taking over huge swathes of Asia 
and indeed of Europe. So Constantinople by the beginning of the 15th century is really just this kind of island encircled by Ottoman lands. And it's inevitable that it's going to collapse. And in 1453, of course, after a 54-day siege, Mehmet the conqueror enters Constantinople in May, and it's the end of that uh, millennium-old Byzantine Empire. So this is a new power in charge and a very different power, really, considering it was largely a Christian city, as you say, for the previous millennium. How did the city develop under Ottoman rule and how did life for its people change during that period? Well, it does change, you know, so churches become mosques. There's one church um, that's allowed to survive as a place of Christian worship, but the very definitely now there's an Islamic power in charge. But actually, really interestingly, I think it changes a bit less than has been said in the past because the Ottoman rulers who take over, they're kind of Renaissance princes and they think of themselves very much in that mould of the European Renaissance princes. So they uh, patronise the arts, they get translations of Homer's Iliad made, uh, they commission extraordinary building works in the city. So in many ways, this becomes a time of remarkable flourishing and you know, again, just out of interest, if you if you visit modern day Istanbul today and look at the Ottoman period skyline, the first thing to say is you really notice it. So you see these beautiful, beautiful mosques like, you know, the, the Suleymaniye Mosque, the incredible Top Kapi Palace, uh, the Blue Mosque, um, uh, kind of wonderful uh, fountains that were dedicated around the city and hospitals. But actually, 50% of that historic Ottoman skyline was commissioned and paid for by the women of the Ottoman world because potent women were in the harem, the imperial harem being based in Topkapi Palace and in other imperial palaces around the city. And at this time, women in Islam can inherit wealth. And there's a lot of wealth circulating in the Ottoman world. And they use this to commission these beautiful libraries and hospitals and fountains. So it's a kind of you know, slightly kind of lesser known facts of of what happens in this period. But yeah, it's a it's an incredible place. You know, Byzantine uh, Constantinople was incredible at its height, and Ottoman Istanbul is also a staggering, staggering city. So a very very beautiful place. Just again, one if you if if people are there and they're crossing over the Golden Horn, there's one detail that I really love that one of the earliest Ottoman emperors who comes in. A sultans, um, I should say. He wants to, uh, he has a kind of bridge building contest because he wants all the kind of the best architects to come to the city. And he puts out this call for this bridge building competition. And uh, one of the people who replies is no less than Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> and we have in one of Leonardo's sketchbooks, the sketches that he does for kind of the bridge that he would build in the city of Istanbul. And he writes a letter to the Sultan and, and he doesn't get the gig. And I kind of love the fact that Leonardo is this, this you know, man that is being kind of praised and lauded and vaunted. But uh, in there are so many brilliant artists who are working in the Ottoman Empire at this time. The Sultan goes kind of Leonardo who, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't get the job. But um, 
um, yeah, so it does change, but there is a lot of continuity as well with what was happening in Byzantium and areas like modern day Pera around the Galata Tower, which had been an area that the Genoese operated in and lived and particularly after the Venetians had disgraced themselves so badly by leading the Fourth Crusade at 1204. So Galata Tower, which was built in 1348, which still stands. And that whole area was was kind of known as like Frankistan. It was where the Westerners lived. And it still has a very different feel today. So if you go there, it just kind of feels more European than, than other parts of the city. And that's because of who lived there, even through Ottoman rule. So really, there was quite a mixed population and, and a period of great splendour in, in Istanbul or Constantinople at that time. As is so often the way with empires, of course, the Ottoman Empire suffered a, a decline over the later centuries. What happened then and how did that affect the city? Yes, well, it's sort of, it's this sort of place that everybody wants to go to, everybody wants to live in, everybody wants to invest in. And it probably then just becomes too wrapped up. It, it sort of creates a gilded cage for itself. You know, this very bloated Ottoman administration, you know, which is incredible in many ways, but it doesn't adapt. And you have all kinds of issues. So the Janissary soldiers who were the um, standing army for the Ottomans and a kind of personal bodyguard for the Sultan and the, the courtiers of, of the Sultan's court. Again, out of interest, Janissaries, many of them, the massive majority of them were originally Christians who'd come from places like Albania and the Balkans and then converted to Islam. And again, just a little aside, if you go to Istanbul, the uh, Janissary faith was this kind of wonderful mixed up form of Islam, uh, which has Sufism in it um, and, a, and a bit of Christianity and even some sort of ideas, again, from the old pagan gods. And you have these things called tekes, which are sort of centres for the Bektashi faith. And because the Bektashi faith was a faith of the road, uh, you, if you turn up as a guest or a visitor, they welcome you with great hospitality and they always give you food and there's still a Bakhtashi Teke that exists on the Anatolian side of Istanbul so this sort of little hint of the Janissary world they revolt and by there's the Crimean War uh, which is uh, you know a huge drain on Ottoman uh, resources Florence Nightingale goes and tends the wounded uh, of the Crimean War in Istanbul at Scutari. But by 1875, the Ottoman state is bankrupt. And of course, you know, there's the famous uh, description of it as the sick man of Europe. And it never really recovers from this moment on. So it's so the 19th century, there is a lot of conflict, internal conflict, um, some terrible episodes in Istanbul's history. And of course, in the early 20th century, World War One happens. And, and this, this really is the kind of nail in the coffin for Istanbul. Istanbul as a city that is that is winning. And you, you mentioned that that change following the First World War, famously Kemal Ataturk was involved in the creation of an, a new Turkish state um, at the end of the Ottoman Empire. What happened then and what impact did that have on, on Istanbul? 
Yes, so exactly. So you and I are speaking in 2023, and it's the centenary of that moment when the Republic of Turkey was declared. So Mustafa Kemal, who's given the name Ataturk, which means father of the Turks, he was himself a soldier, uh, an incredible strategist, and he has this extraordinary vision for the new Republic of Turkey, which uh, is no longer the Imperial Ottoman Empire. And there are staggering changes. So it's a city and a territory that changes the way it writes, that changes the way people dress, that changes how children are taught. So in these tiny little, tiny little kind of remote uh, rural communities out in the east of Turkey, for instance, there's a whole program where they're being taught the dramas and tragedies of uh, ancient Athens because there's this idea that it needs to be an entity that is hyper-connected to the modern world. And, I mean, Ataturk is still really adored in Turkey. His image isn't quite as visible as it would have been if you'd travelled there in the 60s, 70s or 80s, but you will still find images of Ataturk on cups and clocks and tea towels and, you know, uh, his portrait up in, in tiny little cafes out in, out in the, uh, you know, the most kind of remote mountainside districts. And so he really takes Turkey and, and pushes it forward into a contemporary society. So, so there are, there are huge, huge, huge changes in the city itself. The, the capital moves to Ankara. So, Istanbul is no longer the imperial capital. But you know, you know what, even though that has has happened, and there's this idea of this sort of brave new world starting in Ankara, people still think of Istanbul almost as the emotional capital of the city, I think. And it's where people still travel from Turkey, from the east, from the west, to kind of absorb everything that is extraordinary about the history of this remarkable region. So Istanbul might have, you know, not have survived as the formal official capital, but uh, psychologically, it still feels like the the centre of this remarkable place. And as you say, throughout this description, despite the fact that Istanbul has been spreading on both sides of the Bosphorus and north of the Golden Horn, you've still got this incredible range of sites within the city, ranging back hundreds and in some cases thousands of years. I'd really like to ask you to share five sites in the city that you feel reveal something particular about the city's past, if you would. Yeah, well, I mean, how it was very hard. It's it's very hard thing to to pick five, but I w- I'll I'll try. You know, um, so I would say the Copper Market in the Grand Bazaar. So it's one of the oldest bits of the Grand Bazaar. It's a sort of section of that market that goes right the way back to Byzantine times. And it still operates as a copper market. You can still order up. I went there and got some copper earrings for my one of my daughter's 21st uh, birthdays last year. And if you walk in, you, you walk under these rather beautiful Romanesque columns. It feels as though you're travelling back in time. And interestingly, the copper workers were often from the Jewish community because there was a huge Jewish community historically always in Istanbul. Um, Many Jewish families fled there with the fall of 
of Granada in 1492. They were welcomed in by the Sultan. Many, many Jewish families also escaped on trains on the passports of Muslim students during the Second World War. So there's always been this, this tradition of uh, a Jewish quarter and Jewish people being incredibly important to the city. And because of that, there was a synagogue that was permitted to be built in this old copper market by Theodosius I that then became a church of Mary Theotokos, Mary the Mother of God, and then was converted into a mosque. But if you go and walk around there, you you get a kind of sense of a slightly different feel of the city. And again, just a, a little aside, I love the fact that this is very close to the area where Bozza beer was produced, actually by um, uh, Hagia Sophia Church. And Bozza beer, which was very famous in historical Constantinople, becomes the word booze. And we talk about booze in the UK today because so many English sailors would <laughs> turn up in Constantinople and drink this Bozza beer and they loved the booze. So, you know, that's why we say, so, so go there, think of think of copper, think of the incredible Jewish heritage of the place and think of booze. Somewhere else, which is lovely, is the Arasta Bazaar Mosaic Museum. Again, not many people know about it. So it's in the Arasta Bazaar. So people go there to kind of buy their scarves and their and their caftans. But it's a fabulous place that shows some of the 6th century CE mosaics that were created in the palace inhabited by Justinian and Theodora. It's so beautiful. I mean, they are exquisite, these mosaics. Um, it's not a museum that many people go to, so you can kind of really geek out. And if you go there, I would also say, I'm already slipping in more than five, but go and have a look at the Basilica Cistern, which is currently being <laughs> renovated, which was also developed by Justinian and Theodora, where you can go underground and see this amazing underwater storage centre. I've mentioned little Hagia Sophia as an extra to Hagia Sophia, kind of moving into the Ottoman era. The Kilik Ali Pasha Mosque and Baths are wonderful, actually created by an Italian from Bari. And again, you know, we, we must remember how diverse that Ottoman Empire was, who was a kind of gr- a great hero of the Battle of Lepanto because he made it back to Constantinople with the flag of the Knights of Malta and became a Grand Admiral. And this was built by Sinan, the um, extraordinary uh, architect who operated in Istanbul, who's buildings are described as glittering with light and joy giving and and heart captivating so you can go both to the mosque and to the bath so you can go and have a turkish bath in this beautiful bath built by uh, sinan and the other two places i'd say uh, the prince's islands get on a boat go to the prince's islands it's a fantastic day out uh, and again you get the sense of the kind of importance of the armenian community in the story of istanbul of the greek community of the jewish community and it was a place of exile uh, during the byzantine empire so lots of poor it's called that because poor princes were sent out there and often blinded but it's also where trotsky lived out his days and you, you can't get into it but you can have a look at trotsky's old house and just the final thing the wonderful sadberg hanim museum which is a private collection, a beautiful, charmingly curated collection on the banks of the Bosphorus in one of these wonderful old wooden yarlis, these traditional Ottoman riverside homes in Istanbul. And it kind of gives you a beautiful, really manageable uh, tour of the whole history of Istanbul. Wonderful, wonderful, exquisite artefacts in there. And you get a real sense of the, a kind of 360 degree sense of the history of the place. So is that five? Have I done five? 
I, I think five plus some bonus extras. <laughs> yeah, great. That's wonderful. What an evocative list of, of tempting places to visit. Well, listen, just before we finish up, Bethany, could you offer one final piece of advice for anyone planning a visit? A little insider tip. My big time insider tip is travel by boat if you can because the historical centre of Istanbul was built as a medieval city with tiny roads. You will get stuck in traffic if you try and get around by taxi and you can walk but there are a lot of hills in Istanbul and you might find it tiring. So get on a ferry to cross over from Europe to Asia. Water taxis are not that expensive so you can nip up and down and um, investigate the, the kind of beautiful modern city and the historical city so that would be my tip to you definitely try and see Istanbul by boat. Bethany thank you so much for sharing those insights on a city that's clearly so dear to your heart. That was Bethany Hughes her book Istanbul a tale of three cities is out now published by Orion. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. 